This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. The Isle of Man Tourist Trophy is one of the most controversial sporting events in the world, with more than 250 fatalities on the course of its over 100-year history. Some popular media conceptions of the TT riders portray them as thrill-seekers and adrenaline junkies. But is there more to this? Today, I have the opportunity to talk to a researcher and sports psychology practitioner from Isle of Man, who can help us to develop a more nuanced understanding of the experiences and meanings attached to this highly controversial sport. I'm delighted to talk to Dr. Richard Sell, whom I got to know while working at Liverpool John Moores University a few years ago. Rich has a professional doctorate from LJMU, and currently he works as a sessional lecturer at the University College Isle of Man, as well as as an applied sports psychology practitioner. Welcome to the podcast, Rich. So nice to catch up and thanks for having the time to talk to me today. Thanks very much for the invite. It's great to see you after after so long. <laughs> yeah, it's been a few years and I think we first met, it must have been something like three or four years ago, and we kept in touch, especially in the research front, and, and you've done some very exciting uh, research work after that. But for our listeners, let's let's do a little introduction. So please just share freely on your background and and your research and your and your applied practice. Yeah, great. Well, you know, you've already given me a very kind introduction. Um, I I live on the Isle of Man um, with my wife Kerry who's a, a secondary school teacher here, and we've got we've got two young children. I work um, for Isle of Man Sport, um, supporting a number of, of high-performing athletes with, with Commonwealth Olympic and kind of professional sporting ambitions. Um, and as you say, I, I do a bit of lecturing at a local college uh, and some private work as well. So it's a nice, uh, a nice mix of roles that, that I feel I've got at the moment. Um, if, if I give you some information on my backstory, then it might help to put some of the research we're going to talk about into context, if, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in terms of sport and psychology, I mean, sport, I've always had an interest in sport, um, always used to watch sport uh, as a kid. Uh, with, I always remember my gran, whenever we went to my gran's house, she would always have sport on the TV and it would be snooker or cricket or darts or horse racing or something like that but she'd always have sport on the tv and it was lovely to sit with her and just you know talk about sport and then I guess as I got older my dad started taking me to some professional sports events you know football and rugby and um, 
you know, that's the love of sport came came through that, and then participating as well. So um, at school in team sports, again, it was it was around football and rugby, um, and then more latterly, it was it was running. And I know we've had a few conversations about running, and I, I started doing a bit of road running, but I, I just didn't enjoy it at all. And and I somebody persuaded me to try um, fell running, so hill running and mountain running. Yeah. And I just absolutely loved it. Um, so that's that's been my thing for probably the last 15 years. Yeah. Love just disappearing off into the mist for hours on end and not seeing a soul. And um, yeah, it's just, it's it's a nice experience, I find. Yeah. Did you read Michael Atkinson's work on fell running? That was... I, no, I ten years I, ago. I have to send it. Yeah, you'll love it. I didn't, but I, I went to um, my brother used to live in Aberdeen, and there was um, there was a guy who did the park run there with them who'd done some research on fell running. So it was interesting to chat to him. It was um, yeah, no, but I, I, I love that. You know, especially when you get into the you know the higher fells, maybe in in the Lake District in the UK, or you know Snowdonia in North Wales, and you know the mists down. Maybe there's a bit of sleet, and you've you know you've got to find your way there's that sense of thrill and danger and you know you being really responsible for what happens next and you know I certainly find really feel alive in those circumstances and and again maybe when we talk about the research there's there's some crossover there Mm -hmm. but I, I kind of my route into psychology is a bit circuitous so I I kind of followed an established educational route from the Isle of Man. So I went to um, the University of Liverpool. I did a geography degree and then came back to the Isle of Man um, to work in the finance sector. And I, I qualified as a chartered accountant, would you believe? Um, <laughs> but I, I, I always, from from probably the first few months, I always had doubts about you know whether that was the right thing for me. But really reflecting back on on family values, one one of our family values was about, you know, once you commit to something, you see it through. So, so I saw the three years of training through, and then, you know, be, before I knew it, I'd done ten years, and um, yeah, it was just I was never really content. It didn't seem to match my skill set and values, and and it just, just didn't really hold any importance for me, really. But, you know, I, I saw it through. And, and again, looking back, I was probably using some cognitive reframing strategies to try and justify to myself what I was doing. Uh-huh, yeah. But all the time, you know, time, that most precious of resources, slipping away. And, you know, at, at some point I realized, you know, this, I've got to do something about this. I think it probably ties into some of the, is it the call paper on the, the, the sophists and Socrates? Mm-hmm. It was almost that, you know, I, I had this gaping wound and I'd been putting plasters on it for the last 12 years, but I needed to deal with the, you know, the cause of the of the wound. Yeah. Yeah, like this meaning question, whether this is meaningful work for you and worthwhile for you to continue. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I described it as, um, playfully described it as um, making rich people a tiny bit richer. You know, and that just didn't really hold any appeal for me. So, um, yeah, my wife and I, we decided to take sabbaticals from work. So we went traveling for seven or eight months. Um, you know, we wanted to 
experience different cultures, but also it, you know, it gives a bit of time for some introspection and, and to, you know, really think about, you know, what we were doing with our lives, you know, why we were doing it, what, you know, the, the elements of life that were most important to us. Um, and, and, you know, to get away from the Isle of Man to really consider some of those big questions was, was really valuable. And, and then, you know, to cut a long story short, really, when we returned, I, I had a much clearer vision of, of what career or vocation, um, appealed to me. And that was sports psychology. So I started the retraining process. And, you know, as you've said, that's when I met you and, and Dr. Mark Nesty, who were, you know, just really instrumental in my learning and, introduced me to existential psychology which was something I'd never even heard of before you know it was fantastic you know you opened up so many doors for me and um yeah you know I'll be forever grateful for you know for meeting you and and you know the experience that you've shared with me yeah I mean when we first met I I think we it was because of the research at the moment you were thinking of what to do with your master's at Liverpool John Moores and then that was you were thinking of the existential approach and I think the key issue was though that you wanted to do something on the Isle of Man TT and when you put together existential psychology and Isle of Man TT I I thought that well that is something very unique (laughs) and so you talked about your story but I think for the collective story of Isle of Man and how people know it is the TT. You know, that's the first thing that people maybe know about. You're right. It is funny because, you know, even when we were traveling, I remember, um, as you say, you know, you mentioned where you're from and, and people, the majority of people, their reaction is, oh, the Isle of Man TT. And yeah, when we were traveling, we were in New Zealand. I remember clearly we were in a supermarket in New Zealand. And I, I saw a gentleman with a, an Isle of Man TT races, um, jacket on. So I, yeah, I, I went over and, um, yeah, tapped him on the shoulder and we had a, we had a nice chat about the TT and, and, you know, he'd, he'd been to the TT some years, some years earlier. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was really interesting, but, but that kind of thing happens, you know, across the world, really. That's what the Isle of Man's known for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'd been. When I was first as a visiting PhD student at John Moss, and, and so we actually went to see the TT, I just realized that I don't really understand this. It seems so so controversial, so I didn't really know what to make out of it. And so when we met, you were saying that, you know, this is what you want to be researching. It was like, well, this is something that I've seen, but I don't understand. So I would like to understand a bit more. So... I was really delighted to be able to support the project and, you know, work together. But so maybe just first, like, why did you really want to do your research on on the TT? And maybe we can, after that, talk a little bit about those controversies as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, you know, some of your listeners might not really know where the Alaman is, so or you know much about it. So, um, if I give you a bit of background on the Alaman, and then we can go into you know the race in itself. So, excellent. Um, yeah. The the Isle of it's um, a, a self governing crown dependency. So we're we're right in the middle of the Irish Sea, so halfway between Great Britain and the island of Ireland. Um, we've got a population of 
around 80 to 85,000. And sort of in the heyday of TT, the reports that, you know, the population would double during that TT fortnight. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so a, a massive um, tourist, uh, you know, it's a massive part of the Isle of Man's tourist industry. The Isle of Man's got the longest continuous parliament in the world. Did you know that? Mm, no. Yeah, so the tin wall, it dates back over a thousand years, back to the, the Vikings. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so a fascinating <laughs> fact for you there. Um, so, yeah, if, I mean, if we get into the TT, so it, it, it's an annual um, motorcycle road race. Um, so there's there's two types of racing, really. There's the, the short circuit racing on, on purpose-built tracks, and then there's, you know, the, the road racing on essentially public roads. So the race started in, in 1907, as you said, I think, at the start. Um, and it was, it was because the UK introduced speed limits on their roads and the Isle of Man didn't have any speed limits. So that's, that's where it was born. Um, and then even today, the, the Isle of Man still has no national speed limit. So, so once you get out of a de-restricted area, in, in theory, you know, you can go as fast as you want. which is why it appeals to all these bikers during tt you know once you get over the mountain part of the circuit you know they just put the hammer down um so it it was part of the world championships till the mid 70s and then it was just team deemed far too dangerous and it 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 sort of fell away from the world championships and then it, it it was just really a standalone event after that um so I, I guess, you know, if you look at short circuit tracks, as I said, you know, they're, they're purpose built. So they've got nice smooth tarmac. They've got low curbs. They've got gravel traps, you know, if, if, if riders skid off. So, you know, similar to a Formula One motor racing circuit, if you like. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, road racing takes, takes place on public roads, you know, as you've seen flanked by houses and, curbs and bus stops and trees and you know whatever else so you've got bikes going up to 200 miles an hour on you know bumpy tarmac roads and as well on the Isle of Man another challenge is the the length of the circuit it's 37 and three quarter miles so you've got about well anywhere from 230 to 250 corners and so again it's you know it's it's an added challenge for the riders you know when it comes to comes to the Isle of Man. And so you've grown up on the Isle of Man. And so how did your family, you know, what was your family culture around this event? That Would you go and watch it when you were young? Or, you know, how did your parents and relatives relate to all of this? Yeah, well, I mean, people on the Isle of Man, they, you know, they, we grow up with the TT. It's it's the two biggest weeks of, of the year. Um so, you know, I grew up with the excitement of the TT. I didn't always live on the island through my adolescent years. But we were, you know, if we were there, I'd be, yeah, you know, sitting on a hedge, watching the racing, you know, no safety barriers. You know, bikes could be going past at 150 miles an hour, maybe a meter away from where you were sitting. Um, and I just found it, you know, it was it was just enthralling. You know, as a child... And, and, and seeing, you know, in some places you could, you could see through the visors, the concentration on the riders' faces. You could see the whites of their eyes as they flew past. You know, it was, um, you know, that's, that's the kind of image that I, I can still picture it now, actually, one specific corner. And yeah, that'll, 
that'll stay with me forever, that image. But yeah, you know, you know, we we grow up with it. It's as we said, the island's known across the world for the TT. It's part of the cultural heritage. It's it's part of the national identity. It's marketed as the greatest road race in the world. So, you know, we that's sort of hammered into us, you know, through mm-hmm. our our sort of child and adolescent years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then moving on to from being somebody who was experienced at the event to somebody who was researching that. Why did you want to focus your your research at the MSC on this specific event? Yeah, it was it was you know from a research perspective, my interest was it was around the the sort of popular media narrative of of riders as thrill seekers and adrenaline junkies that that was the driver really because it it didn't really fit with my experience of of the riders that I knew so so that was the driver really and then you know we we set about exploring the experiences that led riders then to compete at, at TT so we were drawing on some of the work um that Eric Brimer had done in extreme sports there was some philosophy of extreme sports and um, the the literature that um Breivik had had put together there, there were flow element you know she sent me high flow elements to it and then I'd I think it was it must have been around that time I'd read um fear and loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S Thompson I don't know if you've read that but um yeah and then there was another book about him being involved in in motorcycle gangs but um he brought to the for this concept of edge work about fulfillment and and self-realization from pushing boundaries and negotiating edges so yeah things came to and of course you know you and mark i think everything just came together at a nice time really to to explore it in more detail Yeah, and you said that it didn't really fit your experience in terms of how the media is talking about the riders. Maybe can you talk about it a little bit more? What are those experiences? What was your personal take on those riders and how did it conflict with the media around them? Yeah, I think it was just a very sensationalist, lazy media take. You know, it's it's an easy story, you know, and when there's a fatality at the TT, you can, you know, roll out this adrenaline junkie line and, and it, it, it's just lazy journalism, I think. Um, you know, my experience of riders that, you know, they were extremely diligent, you know, they were detail oriented and, and, you know, they were, you know, entirely committed to their, to their cause, you know, far, there, there was far more depth to it than just getting a quick high. And, you know, as as one participant said to me, it would have been a lot easier and a lot cheaper just to take drugs if it was about getting a high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, it's not to say that there isn't this intense high. I mean, it must be exhilarating, but it's it's not just about the intense high. Mm-hmm. It's part of it, but uh, one-sided exactly. yeah. story to be told. Yeah. And... There aren't so many studies with the writers. Is it because they are just hard to reach? Or why do you think we have this gap? You would think that loads of people are interested in this, studying this phenomenon, you know, this culture. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a, there's a few reasons, I would say. It, it, it is a niche area. 
you know, we discussed this at length, didn't we? I think it, it fits somewhere between traditional sports and extreme sports, but, you know, we're maybe not quite sure where it fits. So it perhaps, you know, takes, you know, somebody like me with, with contextual knowledge and understanding to, to actually start to dig into it. I think culture as well is a massive thing. They're, you know, they're a really tight, close knit culture and, you know, it's really hard to access participants yeah mm -hmm. yeah but so you you managed to get to talk to people i think it was five participants i'm just thinking of it. we have like a couple of years since the work is done so remind me of the details <laughs> yeah we, we ended up speaking to four and it was um it was a it was a mix of current and retired riders yeah and mm -hmm. um three of the four were tt winners and the fourth um had you know a significant number of podium finishes so so really top experienced races yeah and i think one of the things that you put up front is that one of the participants said that you know i'll tell you the real story and not crap that you will read in the media so i think that was quite the start for an interview <laughs> Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, that that was really interesting, and you know, again, reflecting on why that happened, I think I think across all four um, interviews, I you know, I did strike up good rapport with them, but I, I'm not sure whether it was the the confidentiality element of it that mm -hmm. actually led to them, you know, really telling me these, you know, in some cases, really intimate personal narratives, you know, without without us really having any sort of shared history you know but i think through through the people who put us in touch plus the confidentiality i think they had enough trust to to you know share these these stories yeah i think in the recent weeks i just read about some study that you know sometimes people actually do feel easier to talk about personal things to somebody who is a stranger especially when it is this kind of confidential uh, research setting you know that's yeah. even easier than talking to, you know, a good friend of yours, for example. I, re I remember just from a personal perspective, I, you know, a personal issue that I was dealing with that I hadn't spoken to anyone about. And then just I, I was getting a taxi one time to the airport in Liverpool and just, yeah, the, t the timing must have just been right. And, you know, I, I spoke to the taxi driver about it and it was, yeah, it's funny how sometimes if you just get that independent person, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. people do open up. And um, let's talk a bit about um, existential psychology. So that was something that Mark Nesty introduced this um, at Liverpool, John Moss, and many people have to taken a lot of influence, myself included, from his work. And so why did you feel that this was something that resonated with you? And how did that help you to think about TT and, and the research that you were doing? So what was it in existential thinking that clicked for you yeah I, I mean i think we we were thinking about the tt in terms of is it about sensation seeking or or could it be a site for more of this authentic living so you know existential psychology was just the the, the ideal partner really um you know when we when we were deciding how to go about this so you know we were interested in some of these existential concepts of you know Clearly, it's a dangerous sport. So, you know, finitude and um, that authenticity, freedom, um, responsibility, 
So just the nature of the event just seemed to fit really nicely with an, an existential approach. Yeah, we are jumping ahead of ourselves, but this finitude question and, you know, being towards death. But actually one of the, the things that you found was that the people who you talked to didn't really think that they are being towards death. No, no, not at all. Let's talk about that a bit. Well, I mean, you know, from an existential point of view, you know, existentialists suggest that death is... I guess the most fundamental limitation on human freedom, isn't it? Um, an inescapable part of the human condition, and and it's this kind of death awareness that always comes up, you know, when when we're discussing TT, and you know, competitors will, you know, acknowledge it. You know, they'll acknowledge that it's it's dangerous, but also, you know, they they do as much as they can to control the controllables from a you know a performance site perspective. Yeah, and I, I, I guess it's, you know, from a decision-making perspective, the rider's career decision-making perspective, you know, these decisions are grounded in in notions of what's meaningful for them and, um, you know, how, how does this career as a TT, a motorcycle road racer, provide um, opportunities for living authentically and, you know, accepting responsibility for your own actions. It's, it's you know, to me, it's, it's all... You know, it's so interwoven with with existential psychology. It's you know, we, we couldn't not use that lens. Mm-hmm. And this responsibility part, I think, at least in the media, it's sometimes highlighted. You know, when somebody died, and you know, they left a, a family behind, and then you know, is it irresponsible to do this? And then your children will grow up without the father. Are those conversations being held, and how do people think about this dilemma? I mean, I, th- I think from you know what, what you've described there is something that you probably read about in a, a tabloid newspaper, and you know, to me, it's it, that's about somebody putting their frame of reference on a situation without understanding the context or the individuals involved. And again, once you, you start talking in those terms. It's it's very judgmental then. So for me, it's it's about not. You've got to put judgment aside. You know, whoever it is, whoever you're dealing with in a sports psychology situation, you put judgment aside and you, you're looking at the person as an individual. And you know, I think it's um, Rogers talks about appreciating every individual like you would a, a beautiful sunrise. You wouldn't say, "Oh, I was a bit more. I wish there was a bit more purple or a bit more." Orange, you know, you just appreciate what you've got in front of you. And I think some of those accounts are essentially passing judgment on a situation that, that they do not understand. But having said that, you know, I've read an account of one rider who, you know, he's talked about sort of a, a tradition for him before he comes to the Isle of Man for TT. He always cuts the grass at home in case the worst were to happen, then that would be one less job for his partner to do. So they're clearly... It's in their consciousness, but it's being compartmentalized in a in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly part of. We started out with uh, saying that it's a very controversial event, and these are some of the controversies that are obviously part of it. You know, freedom and responsibility, and and this risk that is inherent to this event. Well, it's it's it, it, it is about. I think you know, just from my own perspective and, you know, we're talking about the fell running, if if it is about responsibility and if, if the conditions are, are really bad for a fell race, maybe I, I, I don't know the the terrain that well. I haven't wrecked it that much. 
you know, it's my decision whether to race or or not. I I can put myself in a high risk situation, or I can you know have the courage not to race that day and wait you know wait for another day. Mm-hmm. Equally, if I've done the detail, I know that course like the back of my hand. Then you know how risky is it then for me to go out and and do the race? Um, so so it's about you know how do we and we live in such a risk averse society as well now, don't we? I mean, where where can we go to to have some risky fun? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's definitely true. You know, my, like my kids we've got a little woodland across the road and and all the branches up to about five foot have been cut off to stop the kids climbing trees now to me i'd rather them fall off a, a branch that was two foot off the ground rather than one that was six foot off the ground you know that they're not going to learn risk management by having everything swept away in front of them and told you can do this you can't do this you know how how do they learn to deal with risk when when that decision has effectively been taken away from them? Yeah. Okay, let's have a little break. I really enjoyed this first part. And then when we get back to our second part, let's take a detailed look on these stories, on these individual narratives that have been shared in your work. So thank you so much for the discussion so far. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.